Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you all for the warm welcome. To be able to talk to uh, church planters and pastors and others about the three biggest things in the world is really remarkable. God in his Bible, God in his gospel, and God in his preaching is amazing. And I am thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation and for your willingness to listen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear, the, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. I hope that you love your Bibles. I hope that you believe that the Bible is one of a kind. It is the very word of God. So our task in these next minutes is to pose the question, why I and why you should trust the Bible. Let me give you where I'm going and then we'll go at it. I have these steps in mind. One, trust it for what? The topic assigned to me is why I trust the scriptures. Trust it for what? To be what? That's the first question. Second, why does it matter? Why would, why would you even pose this question? Was it up for grabs or is it an assault or is there some confusion? Why does it matter? Third question, two assumptions. What are they? Because the way I'm coming at this may not be the way somebody else would come at it. So I want to give you two assumptions for how I approach it. And then the lion's share of the evening will be five steps that I take toward or into a justified, warranted confidence in Scripture. So that's where we're going, and it's weighty, it's difficult, it's rewarding. It's been a delight to me to think about this for about three weeks because I gave a seminar on this at my church just a couple of weeks ago, and so it was a wonderful dry run for this. But I feel the need to pray, and so would you pray with me that God would help us? Father in heaven, I so much love your word. I want to be faithful to your word. I want to honor it. I want to honor you through it. I want us as a a band of brothers and sisters here who care about the church for which Christ died. I want us to own this book in accordance with its true value. And so help me. Holy Spirit, come. Guard me from the evil one who is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. He hates the Bible. He hates it 
When people are on their way out of unbelief into faith in your word, he hates it. And he will do whatever he can to wreck this evening and cause it to be misunderstood or get me off on a tangent or saying stupid things. And I pray, oh God, that I would be guarded from him and from error and from any dishonoring of your word. And I pray that its value and its truthfulness and its usefulness would rise in our hearts. If any is here who plays games with your book on Sunday morning, I pray that they would change. And I pray that it would become so plain to us that if this is the word of God, everything changes in the way we do ministry. And so grant, I pray that this would happen, that we would see it For what it is, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Question one, trust it for what? So I'm going to read one, two, three, four little paragraphs from the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. We lived together as a church for about, oh, 17 or 18 years off of an inherited affirmation of faith, a very generic one, a very broad one, which I think is a very good thing for what it takes to be the member of a church. I think the front door of the church local should be about the same the same size as the front door of the church universal, which is really wide doctrinally. And I think the door into the eldership should be really tiny. We didn't make that distinction for about 17 or 18 years. And finally, I I was able after 17 or 18 years of preaching to look around and say, I think we have a band of brothers here who could sign something together. And so I spent about a year working with them on an elder affirmation of faith. I sent it to about 12 people like R.C. Sproul and Michael Horton and David Wells and people whose theological acumen and they sent back feedback. We refined it. And the great miracle is that in a Baptist church, we went to an annual meeting and said, vote to make your elders agree with this. No elder unless they agree with this. And they did. And so now for these last 10 years or so, we've had this affirmation of faith, which is reformed and Christian hedonist and I think biblical to the core. So I'm going to read you the section on Scripture because that's what I'm here to argue for. Okay, We believe that the Bible, consisting in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, is the infallible word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. We believe that God's intentions revealed in the Bible are supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. In matters not addressed by the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of Scripture. We believe God's intentions are revealed 
through the intentions of inspired human authors, even when the author's intention was to express divine meaning of which they were not fully aware, as, for example, in the case of some Old Testament prophecies. Thus, the meaning of biblical texts is is a fixed historical reality rooted in the historical, unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. However, while meaning does not change, the application of that meaning may change in various situations. Nevertheless, it is not legitimate to infer a meaning from a biblical text that is not demonstrably carried by the words which God inspired. Therefore, the process of discovering the intention of God in the Bible, which is its fullest meaning, is a humble and careful effort to find in the language of Scripture what the human authors intended to communicate. Limited abilities, traditional biases, personal sin, and cultural assumptions often obscure biblical texts. Therefore, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential for right understanding of the Bible and prayer for his assistance belongs to a proper effort to understand and apply God's word. So you hear not only a strong affirmation of its infallibility and inerrancy, but a strong statement about the nature of the process of interpretation. And we're all children of our time. We write our doctrinal statements by virtue of what's around us. That's the way they're designed to be used. And you know as well as I do that you can assert the inerrance of the Bible till you're blue in the face and make it mean anything you want. And so hermeneutics can undo everything you did in your inerrancy paragraph. And so hence the way it reads, and I won't defend all of that. We're mainly talking about its truthfulness here. I also won't defend the 66 books. In my initial preparation for this, I had a long section on why these 66 books. And and I thought, if I do that, we'll never get to the really nitty gritty stuff that we've got to talk about. So I've thought about it. I have answers for it. Why these 39 and these 27? But I'm not going there, and I think you'll see why by the time we get to the end. So here's my next step in the outline. Why does this matter? Why was I asked to do this? Is there a problem? Is there some controversy? Are there reasons why we need to defend our allegiance to the Bible as God's infallible word? And I have eight reasons for why this is important. Number one, many in our day deny the existence of truth, period. Here's a quote from Michael Novak writing in First Things. He's quoting now the spirit of our day. There is no such thing as truth. They teach even the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. And here's his comment on that. 
Those who speak this way prepare the jails of the 21st century and do the work of tyrants. Why do you think he said that? What's true for you, what's true for me is fine. There is no absolute truth. Anything goes. Just embrace your own. Be authentic to yourself. Why is that preparing jails? And doing the work of tyrants. Very simple reason. Once truth as an external objective reality is removed as the arbiter between two people who are arguing. The only thing left is power and might will make right where truth doesn't make right. And where might makes right, you have tyrants. Somebody has to rule. Somebody has to settle the disputes. There's no truth out there to settle them. You can't appeal to anything. You don't want to go there. You don't want to lead your church into that view of truth. You don't want to lead this land any further into that than it's already gone. Number two, all of that to say you can see why if that spirit is there holding up a book, as absolute truth, as arbiter between arguments, just won't fly unless people wake up. Number two, one trait of secularism is the criticism of the Bible as a mixture of truth and error. Here's a quote from my hometown newspaper. Quote, one of the few worthwhile statements in the Bible is, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Knowledge of the Bible is hindered by the informal censorship imposed by religious leaders who would rather their followers didn't know what was in it. The innumerable contradictions, historical errors, plagiarism, absurdities, meaningless prophecies, myths presented as historical fact, countless instances of divinely ordered and approved atrocities. It is true that the Bible has some worthwhile material, including entertaining stories, inspirational sentiments, astute observations about human behavior. However, those worthwhile parts could probably be contained in a pamphlet. So that's from my conservative hometown newspaper, Minneapolis Star Tribune. You thought we lived in the Midwest. That's my city. Number three. The competing body of holy books from other religions are coming increasingly close. So once upon a time, the Quran was over there somewhere. Saudi Arabia, maybe. And now it's about 300 feet away. At the Elliott Towers, where the Somalis live, whom we are trying so hard to reach. So as holy books come near, your own becomes relativized and you need to know what to think about that. Number four, one trait of liberal Christianity is the rejection of infallibility of the Bible and the call to find a canon within the canon. The reason the reason liberal Christianity must find a canon within the canon is because they don't want to throw everything away because they're. Jobs depend on not throwing everything away. So 
You get, for example, a statement like this from Ernst Kazemann, previous generation. He was a big deal when I was in graduate school, but there are others saying the same thing now. But he, he set the stage in a most remarkable way. He was one of the main partners with Rudolf Bultmann. The scripture, he says, which one gives over to itself and to which one gives himself up uncritically, gives himself up uncritically without the principal key, canon within a canon, leads not only to a multiplicity of confessions, but also to the inability to distinguish between faith and superstition. The father of Jesus Christ and the idol Does the New Testament canon establish the unity of the church? No. If the formal canon establishes, it establishes also a variety of Christologies, which are in part incompatible. The canon as a, as such also legitimates more or less all sects and all doctrines. I remember the key sentence that was used when I was in graduate school coming out of the German universities where I was studying was the New Testament is not the basis of the unity of the church. The New Testament is the basis of the disunity of the church, meaning it has multiple and mutually exclusive theologies in it. And you must decide what your principal key is and do Zachkritik. Essence criticism, stuff criticism, and decide what stuff is in and what stuff is out. So if that's being promulgated, which it still is, then what are you going to say about your infallible Bible? Which if God is unified, it is unified. Number five, in every generation, there are new creative attacks on the trustworthiness of the Bible. In our day, probably Bart Ehrman leads the pack in trying to discredit the reliability of the biblical text. I asked my church to pray for Bart Ehrman. If, if you listen to this tape, Bart Ehrman, know that you're being prayed for by thousands of people, and you know that already. Bart Ehrman went to Moody, and then he went to my alma mater, Wheaton, And then he went to Princeton Seminary, and then he was a pastor, and now he's not a Christian and says so explicitly. He's written a book called Misquoting Jesus that basically says because of the vagaries of textual criticism, we do not have a reliable access to the, the Lord anymore. And his most recent book, which came out a week ago, called God's Problem, selling at about 18 at Amazon, subtitle, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question namely the problem of suffering. He's on a crusade to undo your faith in Christ and in the Bible. And there will always be such people. I'm not worried about the Bible. Bart Ehrman will come and he will go. And I just pray that he goes out believing. The Bible will stand. Bart Ehrman won't. But how many are swept away? In the process. Number six. It is true. If it is true. The message of the Bible. Is the only message of eternal life. 
Psalm 96.5, all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Bible is exclusivistic. All the gods of the peoples are idols. There is one Lord. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then that way, that truth, and that life is united to word in John 6, 67. Jesus said before the, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nobody else does. So if it's true, eternal life hangs in the balance as to whether people believe this or not. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. One more, Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me, Jesus says, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So the story of Jesus in the Bible, according to that, is the access to the one who, if you reject, you reject God. Okay, whether, what other religion you're in. You might be a Pharisee in Judaism. You might be an imam in Islam. You might be a priest in Buddhism. If you reject Jesus as Son of God, Lord, Savior, treasure of your life, you don't know God. I don't care how many times a day you bow down to him. That's what hangs on the Bible being true. Number seven, building our lives on sacrificial service when it's all a mistake would be very pitiable. In other words, if you construct your whole life around what you see in the Bible and discover at the end that it's not true, that would be tragic. And that's exactly what Paul said, isn't it? First Corinthians fifteen nineteen, If we have hoped in Christ... In this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if the gospel proves false, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's not the Lord of the universe. He's not coming again. He's not taking us into his fellowship forever and ever. We really blew it and are first class fools for the way we spent our lives. Number eight. The Bible makes claims to inspiration and authority and inerrancy. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 2 Timothy 3.15, which are able to instruct you for salvation through Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Is that true? The Bible in many ways, 
claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and claims to be true. Those are my eight reasons for why this really matters. If it matters, and if you decide by God's grace that it's true, I sure hope you build your ministry on it. Because if it would be foolish to have built your ministry on it and find out it's not true, it would be even more foolish not to build your ministry on it and find out it is true. So my third step in the argument, assumptions, two assumptions. Assumption number one, in asking the question, why do I trust the scriptures? I'm agreeing that there should be a why. That's a huge epistemological commitment on my part, because not everybody agrees with that. Many people would say, you don't need a why. Just believe it. Now, here are my reasons for thinking there should be a why to your believing of everything you believe. First John 4, 1. Many spirits, antichrists, have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. To see if they are of God. We are called not to be gullible people. Test the spirits. Acts chapter 17 verses 2 and 3. Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Giving evidence that the Christ must suffer and be raised from the dead. Paul's way of approaching the synagogue was to argue to give reasons from the Bible why they should see things the way he was presenting them. 1 John 5, 13. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Look at the connection between I write, you know. I write these things to you so you know. So there must be a connection between knowing and writing or knowing and reading or knowing and hearing, not just knowing out of nowhere. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus appeared to them through 40 days and presented himself with many proofs. When they thought he was a ghost, he asked for fish and he ate fish. When Thomas doubted, he said, touch me, touch me. Ghosts do not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. Jesus wanted them to have a warranted, justifiable conviction that he was who he said he was. That's assumption number one. It is good, right, biblical to have a why. Let me give you one other reason. God is not honored by leaps into the dark. If you're walking down the street and a man runs up to you with a bag of money in cash, about $10,000, sticks it in your hand, gives you his account number, and says, please deposit this for me. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't even know you. How can you trust me? He says, no reason. Just do it, please. And runs away. How would you feel? 
you would feel this man is stupid. You would not feel honored. You would say he's crazy. Something's wrong with him. However, if you're walking down the street, man runs up, bag of cash, $10,000, gives you his account number, says, please go deposit this for me in Wells Fargo. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you trust me? You don't even know me. And he says, oh, I know you. We work in the same building. You don't know me, but I know you. I've watched you for a year. I've talked to a lot of people about you. You'll deposit it. And he walks away. Now how do you feel? You are mightily honored. And that's the way God means to be honored for your belief in his book. If you say to God on the last day when he asked you, why did you trust my book? You say, no reason. (laughs) Flipped a coin. Pascal's wager or something like that. He won't be honored. That's assumption number one. It is good to have a why. Assumption number two. This is the one that shapes everything I'm going to do now. I am deeply thankful for scholarship. I tried it out and left it behind in its academic form. I'm I'm a pastor. I don't have time to read all kinds of secondary literature. I read very little. I write a lot and read very little and preach and do things like this. this This is not what scholars do going to church planners conference. I love scholarship. I love scholarship. I'm so glad that Daryl Bach writes a response to Bart Ehrman and others like that. I'm so glad they're giving themselves to that. But here's what I know about my own soul and about all the people you talk to in your churches. If I were to spend an hour and 15 minutes tonight developing Developing a very sophisticated scholarly historical argument for the reliability of the text. None of you could repeat it in a week. And so where would you be in your confidence level of the Bible? Scholarly arguments are of extremely limited value in producing people ready to lay down their lives for the truth of the Bible. You can't remember the arguments. I've tried it. I was in this thing for years. I went to school till I was 28 years old, tried my best to be scholarly, learn the arguments, and I just kept forgetting them. And I try to build my confidence that I got three good, solid reasons for why this isn't true. I got it. I felt strong. I felt confident. I could witness. And about two weeks later, I couldn't remember them. And I lost my confidence again. What kind of what kind of martyr does that produce? So I, I just said, Lord. If our folks in the pew have to depend on the reproduction in their heads and the memory of scholarly argumentation for the truth of the Bible, we're all goners. There's no hope. 
That's really true. And I'm not the first to see it, obviously. Jonathan Edwards was very concerned that the Housatonic Indians have a rock-solid, unshakable confidence in the authority of the Bible. And therefore, he gave himself to extended reflection on what kinds of things can I say to them so that when they see them, they know. And, and three weeks later, they'll still know. And when there's tribal warfare and their lives are threatened, they'll still know. That's the only kind of knowing that matters. So my assumption is we got to approach it that way. And if there's no pathway towards the confidence of the Bible that every simple person in your church can follow, we, we just can close up shop. Defer to the priests of the guild and hopefully a few intellectuals will be Christians because the rest of us are flipping coins and leaping into the dark and God is getting no honor. So that's assumption number two. It might be helpful to read um, Edwards on this. This is what Edwards said. By a reasonable conviction, because he argued that he agreed with me. Actually, I'm agreeing with him. (laughs) That there should be a why. Here's what he said. A, A reasonable conviction. By a reasonable conviction, I mean a conviction founded on real evidence or upon that which is good reason or just ground of conviction. Where's that come from? He says this, the gospel of the blessed God does not go abroad begging for its evidence so much as some think. It has its highest and most proper proper evidence in itself. Specifically, quote, the mind ascends to the truth of the gospel, but by one step, that is, its divine glory. Unless men may come to a reasonably solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by a sight of its glory, it is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. Close quote, Works, Volume 1, page 229. That had a big effect on me. He's not making that up. I will take you in due time to the texts from which he got that and show you what he means by it. So now we're at the final step, which fills the rest of our time, namely uh, steps, five steps that I take into a warranted, justified, solid confidence that the Bible is the word of God and thus inspired and thus infallible and inerrant. That's where we're going. Now, there are so many ways to get at this. Here's the way I've chosen. I have come in my life 
say since maybe 18 on, age 18, to junctures in which the authenticity of my faith was sorely tried. I grew up in a Christian home. If, if, if you would ask me, why do you believe the Bible? The first and honest answer is, my, my parents taught me to believe the Bible. That's just the first and obvious, honest answer. My parents taught me to believe the Bible. If I'd grown up in a Hindu home, I believe in Hindu scriptures. And if I grew up in a Muslim home, I believe in the Quran. And we all believe when we're children what our parents tell us to believe. And then there come these moments, right? One or two or three of them. And they're crisis moments. And if you're in a big huff in rebellion against your parents, you're probably going to throw it all away for a while, maybe forever. I never was in one of those huffs. So my, my, my reckoning with my own authenticity wasn't owing to any kicking against my dad and mom. I loved them to death, and I'm thankful to this day that they taught me what they taught me. However, before God, I had to own it. I had to know this is mine because it's mine. This is mine because, because something other than daddy said so. You know, if you're very happy as a Christian, it's really unsettling to make yourself ask that question. But I have from time to time. So what I'm going to do here with you is take you to those steps that have actually worked for me. I didn't go to a bunch of apologetics books to get ready for this and say, well, now, which one of these good arguments will I share with these folks? I didn't open a single apologetics book to get ready. I opened my Bible and thought about my history and read Edwards. <laughs> so here we go. This is John Piper's path. As honest as he can be, I could be totally self-deceived, but I don't lose any sleep over that because I think the spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm not kidding myself. But you have to judge me and you have to judge you. Number one in the five steps. What, I'm asking the question, why do I trust the Bible as God's word and thus infallible? Number one, I met Jesus in the gospel and his self-authenticating glory has won my admiration and my allegiance and my trust. That's step number one. I have met him. I cannot turn away from Jesus. I am held by his supreme excellence, his superiority over all in all his ways that matter. So, I met him in the gospel. What's the gospel? I'll read you the gospel. And we'll be back to this tomorrow evening, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, and now here it comes. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, 
And he was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. In other words, the gospel is a narrative of events that has enough in it about the life of Jesus and enough in it about the death of Jesus and enough in it about the burial of Jesus and enough in it about according to the scriptures so that you know it's got some history back it, and behind it and, and enough in it about the resurrection. Enough there so that you can see him. And I saw him. And he was self-authenticatingly, irresistibly, compellingly beautiful and true. And I could not turn away from Jesus. I've tried to suspend judgment. (laughs) This is dangerous. Now, the text from which Edwards got the statement about sight of glory is 2 Corinthians 4. And I would invite you to open your Bibles and go there with me. We'll be here now and probably again tomorrow evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to read verses 3 through 6. This is huge. This text has been massively important in my epistemology, my understanding of apologetics, my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of preaching, my understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. This text is <laughs> really important. I wish I could impress it upon you. Second Corinthians chapter four, I'll start reading verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, stop there and let it sink in. Edward says this is so crystal clear. If someone is being blinded to something, it's really there to see. Got that? Blindness is not a problem if there's nothing there to see. This is huge. The question is, will you see it? Because if you see it, you've got evidence. I'm looking at this light. That light's on. It's on. Evidence? I'm looking at it. Put a gun to my head. It's still on. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then a little, little intervening verse to, to describe what kind of a ministry you have when that's happening through the word. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, God forbid, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And now verse 6, paralleling verse 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light which corresponds to the light in verse 4. If I were you, I'd circle one, draw a little line, circle the other light. 
light of the knowledge, and that corresponds to light of the gospel in verse 4, of the glory of God, and that corresponds to of the glory of Christ in verse 4. And you might think, oh, those are two different glories because one is the glory of God and the other is the glory of Christ. But look how they're both defined. Glory of Christ in verse 4 is who is the image of God. And the glory of God in verse 6 is in the face of Jesus Christ. This is one glory. One divine glory. It's God's glory. It's the glory of Christ. It's the glory shining off of the the person. I've, I've labored and tried to get my head inside Paul. Why he used the word face here. There's no painting. I don't paint except with words. And so I, I think what he's saying is the glory of God in the face of Christ, the glory of God in the in the person and the radiance, the concreteness of the Jesus that stands forth from the gospel. Now, that's what Edwards meant when he said the mind rises to the truth of the gospel, not by circuitous, discursive argument, but by a direct movement of sight of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's how simple, preliterate people get saved. You preach the gospel in its fullness. Christ stands forth from it through your words. The Holy Spirit removes the blindness and sight happens. And he is irresistibly beautiful. You can't walk away from him. He outstrips all other gods on the planet when he stands forth from the gospel. Listen to Edwards. Nothing. This is his comment about 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Nothing can be more evident than that a saving belief of the gospel is here spoken of by the apostle as arising from the mind being enlightened to behold the divine glory of the things it exhibits. The glory of the gospel who is, which is the glory of Christ. I'm very much influenced in this moment by 12 sermons I've preached in the last weeks on the new birth in a series on regeneration. And what's been clobbering me with tremendous implication and significance is, is this clear word in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, where it says, Having been born again through, not with perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, this word is the gospel which we preach. The new birth is the most amazing thing in the world. It's a miracle. What happens in the new birth? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were blind. The cross was either a stumbling block or foolishness or totally boring. And then 
What this verse says is that the Holy Spirit and the Word comes to this dead heart. And as soon as it touches it with this electrical power, it lives. And the first thing it does when it lives is see. And the first thing it sees is Christ placarded in this Word. That's the way the new birth works. That's what happened. I have seen him. My eyes were opened. Standing forth from the gospel was the very son of God. Appearing in his spiritual beauty for eyes of my heart. Have you ever memorized Ephesians 1, 17 following? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you might know the hope to which you've been called and what is the greatness of your inheritance and the huge power that is at work in those who believe when God raises them from the dead like that. You have two kinds of eyes. Seeing they do not see. Hearing they do not hear. That means you've got two sets of ears and two sets of eyes. And one is here and here and the other is here. What is this? It's not unreal. It's more real than this one. And it apprehends, it perceives reality. Greater reality than these perceive. We think these lights and all this stuff here, we think all this is real. It's not as real as what the heart sees when it sees the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's how I became a Christian, and that's how I make my first step into confidence in the Bible. It's Jesus. I'm going nowhere yet. I'm just Jesus right now. Just Jesus. I haven't proved the Old Testament, and the slaughter of the innocents is the infallible Word of God. I'm going there. It is. But you got to start somewhere. And I think most people in Seattle or wherever you live start with Jesus. The main thing to give people is not a big, long argument for the inspiration of the Bible. It's to give them the gospel, a good, rich, a good, rich presentation of the gospel so that there's enough Jesus in it for him to shine. And the Holy Spirit has something to work with. You know... The, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is is not brooding over the nations, causing regeneration where there's no gospel. He's not doing it, and there's a reason why he flies like this behind the gospel. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. And wherever wherever the gospel goes, the Holy Spirit's coming in, and there's a reason why. John 16, I will send him and he will glorify me. And if you don't tell him about me and the gospel, there's nothing for him to glorify. He's not moving in on hearts without the gospel. But where the gospel is faithfully, richly preached and the Holy Spirit says, I like that. I like that. That's my, what do you call it? My, my Trinity partner. <laughs> I didn't know what to say there. I've never thought of that before. That's number one. 
Number two. Second thing I do, and this is just the way it works for me. You don't have to go this route. Go another route. I turn to the Apostle Paul as a contemporary witness to Jesus who, more than any other witness in the New Testament, lets us see his own soul and his ministry. And I do this because when I need to credit someone, I need to figure out if they're reliable. It helps me to know them. Paul's witness to Jesus wins my trust. I've lived a long time with the Apostle Paul. I love this man. I love this man. I think I know him pretty well. I think I've walked in and out of his mind so many hundreds of times. I'm at home there. I've tried to see his weaknesses and see his strengths. I've I've tried to be honest and say, Mr. Paul, are you true? Are you real? Are you what you say you are or not? And I cannot get away from him. You know, you've heard C.S. Lewis and others do uh, liar, lunatic, Lord argument for Jesus. Either he was a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. It works for Paul. Liar, lunatic or faithful apostle. It really does. Yeah, he has to be one or the other. This man makes absolutely outrageous claims about his ministry. Paul saw himself as an authority equal to the 12. Paul, this is Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through an agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul saw his message as taught by the risen Christ with absolute authority. Paul assumed the right as an apostle to command the churches. Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from me. I said, outrageous to talk like that. Unless... You've got a hotline to King Jesus because he appeared to you on the Damascus Road and said, I will show you how much you must suffer for me. And you're going to be an authoritative spokesman on my behalf. And you will be one of those who become the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20. The Lord gave him his authority for building up the churches and not for tearing them down, he said. Oh, there's so many more things I could say about Paul. I want to. I want to get to something else. I want to skip a couple of pages here and just leave it at that. Just try this on. And not every John may be the one you go to. John, I have to work to understand. He doesn't think the way I think. He thinks in circles. And and Paul, he thinks in a straight line. And so I'm a linear guy. So I just default to Paul and then work hard to understand John. So I'm inside Paul's head listening to his incredible testimony about Jesus Christ and the fullness of his gospel and finding myself sitting in the presence of the kind of wisdom that I cannot resist. In fact, it's divine wisdom. Listen to what he said. Which things we speak, not in words. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 13. 
We speak in words not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. He's claiming, I speak as taught by the Spirit, and if you're spiritual, you get it. That's what he's saying. And I read that, and it coheres with what I sense as I read all of his letters and find myself compelled to give credence to this man. He wasn't a blow-off here. That's number two. Number three, with my knowledge of Christ and of his will and his vision for the world expanded by Paul. So we've gone from gospel, simple, rich gospel presentation and the encounter with Jesus now to the Apostle Paul and his letters and all the riches that he pours in to that gospel to give it foundation and application. With all of that happening, then I turn to the gospels to listen to their witness to Christ and to hear his own words in their witness. And I find the same self-authenticating Christ who won my allegiance in the gospel and in Paul. And I find that this Christ vindicated his own life and ministry on the basis of the truth and authority of the Old Testament. So through him, I yield to the inspiration of the Old Testament and approach it with my heart open to hear what God has to say through it. Now, that was long and complicated. Sum it up like this. The next step is I go to the Gospels and I say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tell me about the Jesus that I now believe in. Tell me about him. Show me the story. Show me this man. And what I find is that as he stands forth from their words, he is the same. And he is increasingly, richly glorious there. And there shines off the pages of the gospel writers, my Christ, my self-authenticating, beautiful, irresistibly attractive, compelling Christ. And what I find is he builds his whole life on the authority of the Old Testament. Now, a little parenthesis here from scholarship. Because some people might say, well, you know, you're arguing in a circle, don't you? I say, well, sort of, but not really, if you understand what I mean by seeing glory. But there is a scholarly support, and that's all they give is support. They, it can't carry the day. I remember needing to argue in my doctoral dissertation to the effect that Jesus credited the Old Testament. And what I found was that even the most radical critics, like those who believed maybe six of the sayings of Jesus were authentic, believed that's what Jesus thought. No scholarship doubts that the historical Jesus believed the Old Testament. Of course, they think he was just stuck in being a child of his time or there's warrant. But this is not up for grabs. Nobody writes dissertations to try to prove that Jesus didn't believe the Old Testament. Nobody. It would be a futile undertaking. So you got that little scholarly support. But mainly I'm seeing in the fullness of the way he lives his life and dies his death. This man lived out of the Old Testament. So let me just give you a few 
texts, you, you know what they are, but when you hear them, they just are amazing the way they pile up. Jesus believed that the psalmist spoke by the Holy Spirit. Mark twelve thirty five. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is saying, David said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord. That's Jesus way of saying he was inspired. Secondly, Jesus believed that what Moses wrote in the law, God himself said. This is one of those subtle, amazing ones. He's talking about marriage. And he says, he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said? He's talking about God here. God made them male and female. This is Matthew 19, 5. And said, and then he quotes Genesis 2.24, which in Genesis 2.24 is not God talking. It's Moses talking. So what does Jesus mean by saying God said Genesis 2.24? He means what Moses says, God says. This is no doubt in my mind that my King Jesus believed every word in the Old Testament is the word of God. It is just written on the face of his teaching over and over again. Number three, Jesus believed that all scripture would be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Number four, Jesus believed that the small affirmations of scripture cannot be broken. So he quotes the psalm. I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, quote, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say to him? who says that God is his father, his blaspheming. The scripture cannot be broken. It just sticks that in there. The scripture cannot be broken, even in its finest points. That's John 10, 33 to 36. Jesus taught that Moses' writings are to be believed. John 5, 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How are you going to believe my words? That's a huge commendation of Moses. If you can't believe Moses, you won't believe me. And I've got many more, but I'm going to pass, pass over them. In fact, I have ten more, but I'm going to skip them because I have other things that get closer to the nub of the matter. So that's number three. Number one, so I'm in the gospel he won me and he won my trust. And I can't turn away from him. Number two, I went to the Apostle Paul to listen to this man's witness to the, the Christ I met in the gospel and, and the richness and the fullness and the character of the man, Paul, the way he suffered and so many things about him. There's a gestalt. I, I don't know whether I'm, I'm groping for words these days. I was saying to David Mathis this afternoon, my assistant who's traveling with me, I just wish I could find words for what I mean by the big totality of the picture you get of a person or the world or a book and how it has a totality effect, not just a one plus one plus one equals three effect. And that's what I mean by Paul showed me the totality of his life, the totality of his ministry and the totality of his gospel won me over, and then I went to the Gospels, and I found the same Christ there. And he stood off the pages, and he warranted 
the Old Testament. So now, basically, I've got Jesus, I've got Paul, I've got the Gospels, I've got the Old Testament. Number four, fourth step. So the circles of conviction grow as the self-authenticating Christ validates Paul and the Gospels and the Old Testament. And so it spreads out to all of Scripture. Now, here's the specific number four. I'm going to go to the Westminster Catechism. I've studied real carefully the, the question in the Westminster Larger, Larger Catechism. How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? I'm going to read it to you. And we're only going to take two of these, and that's going to be my number four and number five, and we'll be done. Here's the answer to the Westminster Larger Catechism, how do we know that the Scriptures are the Word of God? Quote, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert Sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. And finally, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So here are the two I want to take in closing. The one that was called the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. What on earth does that mean? We know that the Bible is the word of God because of the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. That work for you? It didn't for me for a long time. And then lights began to go on big time. So we'll go there. And then the last one will be. The testimony, the internal testimony of the Spirit, but the Spirit of God bearing witness in and by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So let me try to unpack these two. What in the world does the Westminster Catechism mean by saying we know that the Bible is God's Word by the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. This may be the most important one for me because of how it has come to life for me. Let me give you two passages of Scripture which lead us, I think, where they want us to go in understanding this. John 7 Verses 16 to 18. Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. I just went over that too fast, perhaps. That's amazing. If any man is willing to do his will, if your will is 
bent on God's will, in sync with God's will, you will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I'm speaking from myself. Then he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. So he says two things. If your will is to do his will, you'll know whether my teaching and my person are real or whether I'm just talking. But then he adds, I live for the glory of my Father. What has that got to do with it? Everything. Evidently, read it again. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. You won't want that if you want your own glory. You won't be able to see him if you want your own glory. Your blindness consists in your love affair with your own glory. So when it says, if your will is to do his will, it means if your will is been, has been freed from all passion for your own self-exaltation, you are in a position now to see Christ as real. Because his truth is vindicated by the fact that he doesn't live for his own glory. And you don't want to be around people like that because they make you guilty if you love your own glory. Here's the second text, John 541. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. You don't have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. Get that. I have come in the name of another. My father and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name. You'll receive him. Why? Because that's their kind. It fits. They don't feel guilty around that person. That's the way they are. Seeking their own glory, wanting their own name to be exalted. So if one comes like that, they feel good around him. And then he asked this rhetorical question. You know what rhetorical questions are. They don't have answers. The answer is so obvious. They don't have answers. So here's his rhetorical question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Meaning you can't. You can't see. You can't believe. You can't embrace. You can't know. If you have a love affair going on with your own glory, you will be blind to what the Bible is, what the Bible says, and you'll Push it away because it will indict you so many times. But if your will is in tune with the will of the Father, 
And with the will of the Father, that means God's glory. He gets the glory. Then you will see Jesus for who he really is all over the Bible. Now, Westminster said, you know, the Bible is the word of God because of the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. What it's saying is. From Genesis to Revelation, the thrust of the Bible is you don't get the glory. God gets the glory. That's the thrust of the Bible. That's what it's saying. Now, I've spent most of my life trying to say that. God's passion for God's glory is supreme in the Bible. And I didn't realize for years that's what they're talking about here. That from Genesis to Revelation, the scope of the whole is about get God glory. Now, the question is, how does that work to validate the Bible for you? And here, I think there's an interplay between natural revelation and special revelation or the new birth. Um, I'm going to try this out on you. This, I, I've not seen this written down anywhere else. It's just the way I function in, in relating to clouds and trees and spiders that take bubbles of air down at the bottom of the water, build nests and put air down there so they can have their babies underwater, breathe the air that they took down like that. When I look at world like that, something happens about my view of God. I think that God has designed it, according to Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, God has designed it so that his glory is displayed in the world and we all suppress the truth. Remember, verse 18 and 19, we suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them. It's out there. It's magnificent. But we do not glorify him or give thanks to him. But we come foolish in our thinking and our our foolish minds are darkened. And we exchange our the glory of God for the glorious stuff. That's the fallen man. So I know that from the Bible, the world is declaring the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Night unto night is pouring forth speech. The eclipse the other night. So what do you learn when you watch the world? Here's what I learned. And this is all going to relate to the scope of the whole is to give glory to God. And thus, our hearts are one for the authority of the Bible because the scope of the whole is to give glory to him. My existence in the world confronts me just as soon as I'm conscious of a single originator of all that is. A single originator. I don't put he or she or it on it yet. Just some started this and it wasn't two, it was one. Because if it's two, something back to be behind them to start them. One is totally self-sufficient. I'm totally self-sufficient. That one is totally self-sufficient. I'm totally dependent. He has nothing outside himself or it has nothing outside himself, itself. That one is the one on whom I'm dependent moment by moment for all the things that are in life, none of which I deserve. I didn't do anything to be created. I don't deserve anything 
Anything that comes to me, it comes from him. He is personal. Now, that's a big jump. Might be a gas. Might be a person. Deal with it. What do you do? In your, in your, in your most radical, doubting, I'm starting from scratch moment, what do you do? I'll look back as far as I can, okay? I'm going back zillions and zillions of ages. No beginning. Had to always be there. And since it didn't come from anywhere, it didn't have a mommy or a daddy, which would determine its genetic makeup, it could have been anything. Could have been a gas. Could have been a person. That's really liberating to realize, don't you think? Could have been a person. Could have been a gas. Original, ultimate reality could have been anything. I think a lot of secular people operate on the assumption can't be a person. Why not? There was nothing there before to decide what it can't be. It just was. There is no way to decide what was should have been. And then you just have to work back and say, well, look, look at all you persons. And I stand in front of the mirror. I put my arm around my wife this morning because I got an emergency call and couldn't go back to sleep at 430 and she was awake and we didn't have to get up till six. So I just lay there with my arm around her neck and I thought, she's real. This is real. This is not chemicals. This is persons. This is soul. This is high. This is glorious. This is noble. I will stake my life on that. I think naturalistic evolution is the most ludicrous thing that has ever been foisted on the planet. When I stand before God someday, I hope I'm not too near any of those people who said this all just happened because God's going to laugh so loud it's going to hurt your ears. I cannot. I mean, this is a real cannot. I cannot get beyond the fact there is a personal creator. There is a personal creator. I'm not basing this on the Bible at all at this point. I'm talking about what happens to me when I just look at the world and live among human beings like you. I think that accounts for intelligence in this world and personhood in this world. He deserves to be reverenced and admired and looked to for guidance. I feel guilty for failure in not rendering him what he deserves in gratitude and praise because of his glory. He might be able to save me, but if he were to be able to save me, it would have to be in a way that overcomes my evil impulse and vindicates the honor and glory that he has that I have so belittled. That's just my natural theology, natural theology. Before I get to the Bible, that's what's happening to me. Now, here's the, here's the way that works. When the Westminster Catechism says, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, Because the scope of the whole 
is to give glory to God. Everything in me says yes. Because of what I've seen in the world. Yes. Now, it wouldn't unless the Holy Spirit were working on me. I have to be born again for that big yes to happen. But the fact that you've got John 7 and John 5, and then you've got natural theology all teaming up to say with hundreds of other texts that God's passion in this Bible is that he be glorified so fits with everything I see in those texts and in this world that there is this gestalt yes to this book. That's number five. Lastly, number six, the internal testimony of the Spirit. The most famous and um, thorough person to reflect on this is John Calvin. So I'm going to read you Calvin and then look at one text and we'll be done. This is John Calvin on the internal testimony. Let me read it to you one more time. How does it appear that the scriptures are are the word of God? The spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures. It's so important to get those prepositions right. By and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to fully persuade it, the heart, that they, the Scriptures, are the very Word of God. So Calvin is saying, when all of our analyses are done and all of our historical books are written and all of our arguments are made, it's going to come down to the testimony of the Holy Spirit in by, with the scriptures in our hearts saying, yes. Now, what is that? What does it look like? Oh, how, how distorted this has become in many people's theology. I'll say it right off the bat, what it's not. <clears throat> it is not taking your Bible out in the woods, closing it, putting it on the ground in front of you, holding your legs and saying, Holy Spirit, tell me, tell me. Is that black book your book? That's not the witness of the Holy Spirit. He might say yes, he might say no, or the devil might say no or yes. What the devil can't do is help you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So let me read you what Calvin says about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. A most pernicious error widely prevails that Scripture has only such weight as is conceded to it by the consent of the church. That was what he was dealing with mainly in his day. The church said, believe the Bible because we tell you it is God's word. So lay yourself down in the lap of Mother Church and whatever Mother Church believes, you believe. We believe the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, you believe it. And therefore, you have some good confidence. And, And Calvin says... No way. As if the eternal and inviolable truth of God depended on the decision of men. Yet, if this is so, what will happen to miserable consciences seeking firm assurance of eternal life if all promises of it 
consists in and depends solely upon the judgment of men. That's Calvin's rejection of the ecclesiastical warrant of Holy Scripture. He goes on. What's the alternative? How can we be assured that this has sprung from God unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? It is as if someone asked, whence will we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Indeed, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black and the as white and black, that page is mixed up here. As white and black things do of their color, or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. So how shall we know? Quote, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in the word... The word will not find acceptance in men's heart before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the spirit. The same spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. Because until he illumines their minds, they ever waver among many doubts. Now, I'm going to give you one text. And then close with a quote from J.I. Packer summing it up. Here's the text. This text is right up there with 2 Corinthians 4 in shaping my thinking about the work of the Spirit in assuring us of the Bible. 1 John 5, verses 7 to 11. 1 John 5, verses 7 to 11. It is the Spirit who bears witness... Because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. Verse 11, the most important one. And the witness is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Is the quickening of a kind of life. A kind of seeing. A kind of spiritual apprehension in you. That you didn't have before. And which now sees. Beholds, in and by the word, this is the very word of God. Let me read you J.I. Packer's summary of Calvin. Calvin affirms Scripture to be self-authenticating 
through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. What is this inner witness? Not a special quality of experience, nor a new private revelation, nor an existential decision, but a work of enlightenment, whereby through the medium of verbal testimony, that is so important, through the medium of verbal testimony, the blind eyes of the Spirit are opened and the divine realities come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. This recognition, Calvin says, is as immediate and unanalyzable as the perceiving of a color or a taste by physical sense. An event about which no more can be said than that when appropriate stimuli were present, it happened. And when it happened, we know it happened. End of quote. Or to use the words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the arrival at a warranted, justified, solid, reasonable foundation for our faith in Jesus and our faith in the Word of God that surrounds Him and shows Him and explains Him and promises Him is a work of grace. And I pray that that Your Word tonight, as people go from here and open their Bibles before they get in bed tonight, something fresh, something new would happen. That if they're not born again, there would be life given to their souls by the word. And if they are born again and there's a kind of cloud, would you blow it away? Because Paul prays that we Christians would see. And I pray now that I would see more clearly. And these brothers and sisters would see and that there would be a self-authenticating glory shining out of your word, especially as it centers on the gospel and especially as the gospel centers on the glory of Christ, your son. Oh, God, work these miraculous things that are real. Don't let us be blind anymore, I pray. May there spread throughout Seattle and across this land a seeing in America, a seeing in the church Would you lift the pall of darkness that is on this land and on the church and on so many pastors' eyes? Grant, O God, that they would see it standing forth with such self-authenticating glory. They cannot but preach it. They cannot but build their ministries upon it, O God. So stand forth, Jesus, from your holy word and make us know. In your holy name we pray. Amen.